For part one of our third interview, Dr. Stephen Lindheim chats with Dr. Cameron Nazat. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. Good afternoon. It's with great pleasure to introduce our guest this afternoon for our podcast, uh, Cameron R. Nijat. Dr. Nijat uh, is with great pleasure as a friend of mine, uh, a mentor of mine, uh, and he's been called the father of modern day surgery for inventing and pioneering video surgery, which to this day continues to replace old techniques of open surgery. His developments have revolutionized surgery and gradually replaced laparotomy. He and his colleagues, his team, were the first to perform many of the most advanced laparoscopic surgical techniques with and without robotic arm assistance. Early on, he advocated and proved that the majority of open procedures at the time could be performed by video laparoscopy. By doing so, he opened the door for surgeons all over the world to advance the field of minimally invasive surgery and help their patients. As the original proponent for minimally invasive surgery, Dr. Nijat has declared that wherever in the body a cavity exists or can be created, minimally invasive surgery is possible and probably preferable. The limiting factors are the skill and experience of the surgeon and the availability of proper instrumentation. In the 1990s, he collaborated with the pioneers of the robot Ajit Shah and Phil Green on the development of the Da Vinci robot and has innovated many of its applications. His pioneering work above, along with his other innovations like vessel sealing and cutting devices, suction irrigation instruments, surgical lasers, saved abdominal entry techniques, serve millions of patients around the world. He has more than 30 patents for his various in inventions and developments. Furthermore, he is the author of eight textbooks and several hundred peer review articles and book chapters. He's trained many physicians around the world who become pillars of their communities. He started teaching postgraduate courses in 1982 and continues to teach and share his knowledge with medical professionals internationally. He has had teaching and leadership roles at many different societies and universities around the world. In 2014, Dr. Najat, in collaboration with the Society of Laparoendoscopic Surgeons, started the first endometriosis specialist subspecialty in minimally invasive and robotic surgery fellowship, embracing a multidisciplinary approach. He is the foundee of Worldwide Endometriosis Endomarch, a global grassroots movement with the mission of raising awareness about, the end, about endometriosis and finding non-invasive diagnostic testing and ultimately prevention and treatment. More than 60 countries around the world are involved in this movement. Dr. Nishat is the recipient of many awards. He has been involved in research, teaching, innovating, and philanthropic activities while in private practice throughout his professional life. His biggest love is to take care of his patients. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Najat, as a surgical legend in our field. Dr. Najat, thank you so much for joining us today. 
and uh, I'm overwhelmed and moved by your biography and uh, uh, I should have a fraction of your career um, uh, to be able to hold a candle next to you. So again, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Do us a favor, the whole audience would like to know a little bit about yourself, your family, your direct family, of course, all of your brothers. Give, me, give us a little bit of the uh, uh, historical background, you know, where you're from, and you know, you know how you ultimately made it here to the United States and where you did all your medical training. I would be happy to. I am uh, Persian and uh, my parents, uh, we were from a very small town in the center of Iran, the old Persia. And it was a very, Again, a very small town. It had only one paved street that it was only cars passing through it. Otherwise, everything else was unpaved or simply mud houses, if you can. So, but it was called, the city was called, the, the translation to English is the tribe of the king, and that meant the old Persian kings of Darius and Cyrus, because it was right in the center of Iran. And I assume one of those tribes loyal to the Shah, part of the king of old Persian kings, they were there. My father was older than my mother, and significantly my mother was uh, a teenager when they got married. Uh, the, the, it's a story of a love story, how they got, uh, they fell in love. And they were very, very devoted together. And I learned a lot from them. Uh, as uh, you know, my brothers, uh, Far and Sina are in, uh, gynecology and Paul uh, is a gynecologist oncologist in New York and Sina is doing reproductive endocrinology infertility and minimally invasive surgery in Atlanta and we were five brothers unfortunately my older brother who was also like a father to us passed away uh, three years ago and our father, uh, when we were younger, uh, our mother got sick and doctors helped our mother and our father was always praising doctors. If it was not for your, the doctors, we did not have your mother. And if your mother was not alive, all of us would be dead because I didn't, he said, I didn't, I don't know how to take care of the five uh, boys. And um, so he was very always complimentary of our mother, very in love with our mother and praise her. So we as five boys that uh, we were growing up, uh, seeing our father and my two other brothers, Rustin, well, unfortunately passed away three years ago. And my other brother, Ali, uh, who is smarter than all of us. Then we 
uh, when we were growing up, our father passed away and our mother never got married and she took over and she raised us. Tell me, where did you go to medical school? Myself and my two other brothers went to medical school in Iran. Personally, after I finished medical school, I came to the U.S. I did an internship in, and also a residency at the State University of New York in Buffalo. It was first Millard Fillmore Hospital and then the other hospitals affiliated with the State University of New York in Buffalo. After that, after my OBGYN residency, I did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility with Dr. Robert Greenblatt and Dr. Don Gambrell uh, at the Medical College of Georgia. Also in the lab, the director of endocrinology at the Medical College of Georgia at that time was Dr. Mahesh. Tell me, how did you make your way out to Stanford? There were different schools from the Northeast, from the Southwest, and also from the Southern California and Northern California that all they, they invited me to join them and Stanford was more persistent. You've embellished is that, you know, anytime you have something that's new, people will say that it, it, it's, it, it's not true or it doesn't work. But would you say that there's, if you could tell all of our listeners that, you know, as you've gone through and look back in your career's work, what, what, what have you learned? And, you know, what, what messages would you want all of us learners to take away from what you've learned in your career? So essentially, we, we didn't want to go anywhere because now, we had been established in Atlanta, Georgia, very well. And uh, finally, my family, after many, many years of each of us being different parts of the world, were gradually together, we didn't want to move. But Linda Meyer, who is even now, presently is the chair, uh, the chair of the board at the Stanford University Medical Center. And at that time, there was a CEO, uh, Kenneth Bloom, they came to Atlanta, Georgia, and they convinced us to go to Stanford. And we finally accepted to go to Stanford, and we started there in 1993. We started at Stanford in 1993. Tell me, uh, tell me about your family, uh, wife, significant other, how many children you have? Uh, I am divorced. And uh, unfortunately, I uh, just didn't happen for me to have children. And uh, it has been said that great works of art has come from childless men who have tried to demonstrate themselves where their body has failed them. Well, let me tell you, of the many children you have, you have children like me who look up to you as their father for 
teaching us and guiding us, uh, you know, in uh, all the things that we do uh, do today. I have a, a question to take me back to your uh, fellowship, uh, Dr. Greenblatt uh, and Gambrill. What would you say is one of the most uh, unique things that you learned from them at the time that we would find so provocative and interesting or so very different than from what we do today? Uh, Dr. Greenblatt and Dr. Gambrell have had a lasting effects on my life. To this day, whenever I see patients, I use some of their phrases and they are in my mind of what they taught me. I learned Dr. Greenblatt at that time, he was Jewish. And when the story of the hostage crisis happened in Iran, about Iran and Unfortunately, at that time, uh, it was a small town. I was subject of some unfairness. And uh, Robert Greenblatt, being Jewish and being in a small town, he was very, very supportive. Dr. Gambrell was not Jewish. He was a Baptist, the son of a Baptist. one of the most incredible human beings, humble and kind human beings I have ever met. He was always kind and very serious. You would never know, but he would do so much for you without telling you and without letting you know. Um, I, I, you know, well, as a student, to this day, I admire them and I think about them. Well, I will tell you uh, from my, my experience, Dr. Nujat, that whatever he did to you rubbed off on you because you're exactly like that to many of us in the field uh, for which we really appreciate. You and I have talked about uh, as a surgical legend in the field, some of the challenges that you've had in uh, one of the, uh, the, the stories uh, that I want to hear, and I think the audience would love to hear most, is how you got into laparoscopy and the video laparoscopy. And uh, maybe you can, uh, uh, as long as you would like, uh, you know, give us uh, the version of uh, how this came into being and how you were putting contraptions together. And then the, uh, uh, the uh, protagonists, uh, the non-supporters, um, how you finally were able to win them over uh, in, in what to now, now today is standard, standard care. In medical school and residency, especially internship, whenever doing procedures, and sometimes you look into the ear, into the nose. Uh, whenever you look, only one person could see. And, and, and not nobody else. Or whenever during surgery, I noticed and during my internship, we would do laparotomies. Laparotomies were very small amount of disease. And there was one of our professors who was also a mentor at the State University of New York in Buffalo. 
Dr. Ron Bat. God bless his soul. He passed away several years ago. He was an endometriosis expert and infertility expert. And he wrote a book, and the book is that, you know, essentially about laparotomy for endometriosis, even mild disease, very mild disease, you would do laparotomy to treat it for infertility patients. And, you know, I had some experiences when I saw, unfortunately, some patient who, you know, had very bad infection, wound infection, and, I, you know, some other negative experiences of uh, necrotizing fasciitis of the skin. And, and I, after I was thinking by myself, so how do we have to do all of this by making open uh, procedures? And uh, always, why do we not do this through the minimally invasive surgery? At that time, laparoscopy was simply new for tubal ligation and diagnosis. And I was pretty good at that during my training. And my attendings used to come and ask me to get into the abdomen often for simple tubal ligation, so on. And that is where I started developing uh, video endoscopy, video assisted endoscopy, and, and there was nothing available. So I used to borrow big old video cameras, take it, and in our hospital, there was a dog uh, animal laboratory. And some of it I would take and practice, hang it to the ceiling, hang it to work to see if I can practice with it. It was very difficult and the light sources, they were not adequate. So sometimes I would put the video and I would hang it from the wall with all kind of uh, duct tape and so on and so, to, to see how we can do it. And then I would put video, some extra light sources in the abdomen with old, to see better. And I saw that it is possible to do it but the technology was not there. And whoever I talked to, it was essentially faced with laughs and disbelief and nobody wanted to do anything about it. And I persisted and continued and talked to many, many companies. And still I continued to use a video cameras which was being used for other purposes, even some of them, none of them were for any kind of endoscope, including or throughout nothing. So when I showed to some companies that it is possible and it works, then they started to develop some of those video endoscopes or video assisted endoscopes that first, because we needed less light with arthroscope, arthroscopy because of the bones being white, it was easier, we needed less light. So they started using that and I, uh, and I know they were using it. We continue to use that. I continue to use that, we encourage them. And the light sources got better, the cameras got better and 
the rest of it is history, as you know, the video gradually, gradually people believed it. At the very beginning, there was significant opposition even to using the video, simply video. I was just telling them if we add the video, we can do more, it's safer. And, uh, but uh, I remember it took five or six years whenever I sent the paper for publication, they didn't accept it. And one of them said, well, you are advocating a dangerous technique mm. and cause death. So nobody wanted to accept that, but as time went on, finally, when I had to even publish it, I had to put the video, how I do it inside of my paper because the titles didn't, anybody wanted, nobody wanted to accept it that video is really working. But uh, as the technology progressed and people saw it more and more, they believed it is. You've embellished is that, you know, anytime you have something that's new, people will say that it's, it, it's, it's, it's not true or it doesn't work. But would you say that there's, if you could tell all of our listeners that, you know, as you've gone through and look back in your career's work, what, what, what have you learned? And, you know, what, what messages would you want all of us learners to take away from what you've learned in your career? I just want to let you know that if, or uh, what I did, I, would do surgeries and I would see my patients they are doing really, really well. And, but I was faced with the fact that I was hearing over and over and over that no, you shouldn't do this. This is wrong. But my patients were doing very, very well. And my patient liked what I was doing. I was videotaping everything. I was giving it to my patients. And this continued even when I came to Stanford. And you may know, and some of my other friends know, we had to go through a big, big battle. This non-acceptance of this method it went on for decades and there was decades of practically fighting. And I was to some degree, sometimes I was questioning, but at the same time, I knew this is the right thing to do and it is working for patient. I am not going to lie to you and tell you it was easy all the time, no. It was very, very, very hard at times but I thought this is the right thing. It works very well. To this date, I have done more than 20,000 surgeries. Patients, I have done surgeries from eight years old to 92 years old. And thank goodness I have not lost a patient. And I give the credit to a lot of technology that it is not open surgery. And of course, expertise and training. But it was difficult and many, many levels of opposition of nationally and internationally different areas. But uh, 
I knew that this is good for the patient, it works for the patient, and if I give up, then I would be depressed the rest of my life. And in the midst of all the problems that I had, with opposition of questioning minimally invasive surgery and what I do, in the midst of it, unfortunately, my mother passed away. And that was very, very difficult. That was the lowest part of my life at that time. But thank goodness, things worked out and people, they came out and wrote down that minimally invasive surgery is the way to go. For example, for bowel resection, for the bowel resection that I originally performed and published beginning of 1988 about it, and at the very beginning at that time, they had called it barbaric. In 2004, New England Journal of Medicine came and said, it is the way to go. And Another one at the very beginning, when I started, I was doing a lot of minimal invasive surgery. Some of my papers and publications were subject of uh, satire. For example, when I published the first laparoscopic radical hysterectomy paraortic pelvic node dissection, and then there was an article um, uh, as a joke in the same journal when they published it, several years later, the, the joke was uh, laparoscopic of vaginal delivery, uh, one case and review of the literature. So they make a joke of that laparoscopic radical hysterectomy or is not possible and it is a joke. But the same, to the credit, to the credit of the same editor, and the same journal, Green Journal, 18 years later, the same editor who was uh, marking it, they came and said, no, there is enough evidence to show that minimal invasive surgery is better than laparotomy for the, these cases. So uh... I don't have any, they meant well, they had good intentions, but obviously, that was not the brightest moment. You've talked about Dr. Gambrell, Dr. Greenblatt. You talked about your mother and your father being inspirational uh, leaders. Can you, can you tell anybody, tell us, anybody else in your career, you know, future, past, who's been an inspiration uh, to you in your career? I have been recipient of mercy of many, many of my friends and colleagues and physicians. I mentioned Dr. Greenblatt, Gambrell, Dr. Uh, Galloway, Lester, Grimes, Fish in Georgia. And then I, recent years, as I uh, progressed, there have been people that have been very supportive of me and my work. And during, for example, when I was doing these publications, of minimally invasive surgery. And it was very, very difficult at that time because the whole world seemed to be trying to stop and actually discredit the whole work. Uh, 
by some misguided competitors, perhaps, or people, or perhaps they meant well, they had good intentions, but it was not the brightest moment. But there were people that they were very supportive and they were very encouraging to keep doing your work. And that in the past, it was Dr. Alain Ducherny that he was publishing my work as much as he could in uh, the Journal of Fertility and Sterility, as much as it was possible. At all the time, it was not possible. For example, as I said, some of the very early pioneering work even for endometriosis and so on. And in the recent years that I learned humility and fairness that there are people in the world who see what you are doing in recent years, Dr. Robert Wall, who is a reproductive endocrinologist and the past president of American Medical Association. I saw and learned from him the fairness. And there are people who see the facts and the truth. You just have to be persistent and keep doing your work.